I'm Eric Knox, this is my daughter Emily. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent is a time when we celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world. And this is a reading from Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah 5, 2 through 5. We light a candle for each Sunday of Advent as a symbol of the light that Jesus brings into our life. A reading from Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Back in the fall of 1982, I started dating a girl who conveniently later agreed to marry me. And so the first Christmas we spent together, Christmas Eve, we went to a Christmas Eve service. And then family tradition in her family was to go back to her house. And we had a big meal. And her parents were already grandparents. So there were maybe six or eight nieces and nephews ranging in age from, I don't know, a couple years old to maybe eight or ten and they would use little figurines underneath the Christmas tree, nativity characters, and they would tell the story of that first Christmas. And it was awesome because uh, many of you may not know that G.I. Joe got invited to the first Christmas. Uh, there was a little altercation between the donkey and a sheep, and it was a very, you know, kind of a creative way as a family of kind of remembering the birth of baby Jesus. And I think, like that song, you know, Jesus coming slowly, softly, cloaked in vulnerability. That stirs a chord with us. I mean, it's such a powerful image that God would take on frail humanity and come and live among us and demonstrate his love in such a dramatic way. So it's a little weird for many of us in the West to think about the fact that for 2,000 years, Advent as a church celebration has always been about not just the first coming of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ. That those two focal points have been present from the very beginning. The idea that Jesus came and walked among us and Jesus is coming back. Those two focal points anchor the whole Advent celebration. 
And so, if you look at the Revised Common Lectionary, which is kind of like a, a guide for scripture reading that hundreds of thousands of churches all over the world use every year, it kind of makes sure that you cover portions of the Gospels and the Epistles and Old Testament and Prophets. And, and so, this is kind of like the standard thing. So, every year for the first Sunday of Advent, there are readings that might sound familiar to you about baby Jesus and a manger and wise men and those kind of things. But then, like this year, First Sunday of Advent, there is the passage from Luke 21, which is somewhat disturbing. It says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the seas and the waves, people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the power of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man. And Jesus used this term to describe himself often. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Where's baby Jesus? I want baby Jesus. I'm not, I am absolutely not recommending Teledega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. But if you've ever seen that movie, he always prayed to little baby Jesus. And when corrected about that, I was like, no, no, I like little baby Jesus. I think we all like little baby Jesus. Because like little baby Jesus, what can he do? Like, what's he going to say if I make my own choices? Like, I, I'm all over that whole, you know, like, yes, let's be generous and give gifts to each other and God loves. Like, that part's awesome, but whoa, wait a minute. You want to talk about judgment and God coming in power and glory, like destroy everything and make everything right? Eh, that just doesn't line up with my view of Christmas. So I suspect that most of us in the West especially we tend not to pay much attention to these kind of scripture readings or the, like the last verse of Joy to the World. If you look it up, you'll see that it talks about the second coming of Christ so much more than it talks about his first coming. But I think in the West, we are very comfortable with the idea that we live a pretty good life. Like, you know, do we really need a Savior right now? And I have a feeling that if we lived in a place like Alma talked about, or if we lived in a place where 40 million people are slaves today, if we lived in a place where child sex trafficking was a reality, if we lived in a place ravaged by famine or genocide, we would be desperately wanting a Savior to come and make things right. But in the West... We've got pretty much everything we need, pretty much everything we want. Heck, I can have it delivered tomorrow on Amazon. So why do I need a Savior coming in power and glory to straighten out everything that humanity has messed up? So I just want to recognize that there is a dissonance between how our culture celebrates Christmas and what traditionally the church has said Christmas, the Advent season, ought to include. And that idea of the second coming of Christ, I want us to dig into for a few minutes this morning. We're just right on the verge of, of jumping into unwrapping presents and eating massive amounts of all kinds of food and seeing family, and those are all wonderful things. But it feels as if we might be missing something of what Christmas could involve if we skip over the Savior's second coming. We're wrapping up a, a Christmas series called The Savior of the World. And this morning, I want us to look at a passage 
from Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. And even though he was the guy that denied Jesus three times on the night that Christ was crucified, because of God's amazing work in his life, he ends up being like the foundational, the pivot point of the early church in Jerusalem. So about 30 years after Christ's earthly ministry, he writes 2 Peter. And he writes to people who are wondering, like, you know, Jesus talked about his return, but it's been 30 years. Do you think he's really coming back? So I'm going to read this passage to you, and I want you to uh, just listen. I just want you to sit back and kind of let these words soak in and think about this, because these are not the typical verses that we, we tend to read during Advent. Peter says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed... In this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and you speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. You know that I am not smart enough or clever enough or righteous enough to be able to bring this passage to life, but we believe that your word has power because it comes from you. And so I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and that you would apply this to our hearts, that you would stir our thoughts, and that you would create space in us where you would have the ability to speak and prod and nudge and change us. So we ask you to speak to us this morning. Amen. So we got two days left before Christmas is here. How do we wedge this rather intrusive idea of the second coming of Christ into our understanding of Advent, which is all focused on the first coming of Christ. And I think Peter gives us three suggestions, three ideas that will help us kind of incorporate that even into the next couple of days, even in this next week, before we get back into the new year and the, the swing of things. And the first thing that he says to us is we should remember regularly. We should just make this a pattern in our life where we're reflecting on this and we remind ourselves often that Jesus is coming again. He did come a first time, but he is coming again. Of course, there are going to be doubters and skeptics 
Even in church circles, there are people that will say, well, uh, you know, maybe he is, maybe he's not, I'm not really sure, but I don't know, does it make a difference? If Christ isn't coming back, if judgment isn't certain, then why don't we just do what we want to do? In Peter's day, there were people who took that point of view. They argued, hey, we look back over human history and life goes on as it always has from the beginning. There's no sign of God's judgment. There's no indication that God's going to intervene and do something crazy. I mean, why can't we just do what we want to do? If Jesus hasn't come back yet, why believe that he'll come back at all? How do we know that he makes any difference at all, whether it's in the past or the future? And to that line of thinking, Peter responds, look, do not be discouraged. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be disheartened. Remember. And he gives us three things to remember. He says, first of all, remember the prophets. I mean, your Jewish scriptures remember the words of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, Micah, all of them talk about a coming day of the Lord where the Lord will return to judge and make things right. And then he says, but don't just stop there. Remember what Jesus himself commanded about his second coming. Jesus said, be ready, be watchful, because no one knows the day or the hour. And when the master comes back, you want to be the one who has been faithful so that he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus spent quite a bit of time talking about his return. All of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about his return. All of chapter 13 of Mark, all of chapter 21 in Luke. So if Jesus really was the son of God and his teachings are true, then what he said about his second coming is true. And then the third thing that Peter says is, don't forget, through his apostles, especially Peter, but also Paul, and then in Revelation, John, these closest followers of Jesus made it very clear that Jesus will return. Now, there's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of variety of opinion about how everything's going to unfold at the end of time. But among Christian scholars, over many different traditions, there is almost universal agreement that the Savior will appear again. So the Apostles' Creed, which many churches recite on a regular basis, is kind of like just a, a Reader's Digest condensed version of their beliefs. The Apostles' Creed said, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. So let's be clear this teaching that Jesus is coming again runs all through Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it's something that Jesus talked about himself. So let's remind ourselves often. For me, this time of the year is a great time of year. Conveniently, through circumstances not entirely under my control, the last part of December is like my favorite time of year. All of the important dates in my life occur over 10 days in December. So December 21st is my anniversary. Then we got Christmas. A couple days later, we got my birthday. You can have the other 11 and a half months. I really don't care. But as long as we're talking about like the last 10 or 11 days of December, I'm happy because it's all pretty much about me. <laughs> you laugh. Aaron Croats is getting married on December 29th here, and we've had to negotiate what's going on the cake. I think it should say happy birthday, Alex, but she's insisting some, you know, bridal stuff. Anyway. So Jill and I just celebrated our 34th anniversary, and of course, we look back at the pictures of those weirdly young people. Thank you. That's for her because she stayed married to me for 34 years. 
So we certainly look back and we remember the people and the circumstances and those are great things, but we don't stop with that and go like, well, that's been a great 34 years. We also talk about the future. We talk about what's ahead, what we might look forward to. It's the same sort of approach with Christ's coming and Advent. We want to look back. Of course we do. We want to remember the Savior's birth, but we don't quit there. We don't stop with that. That's not the whole story. We also want to look ahead. We want to do that every Christmas when it comes to the second appearing of Christ. So let's not speed through the Advent readings that talk about His second coming, that bring up things that are kind of fuzzy and confusing and judgment and stuff that's not very popular maybe to talk about. But we do need to think about those things and pray about them. We need to talk about it with other believers and we need to remind each other and challenge each other, Christ is coming back. When we talk to our children about the first advent of Christ, we also need to remind them that this is a foreshadowing of his second coming. The first time he came in humility, the second time he comes in power. Even our kids can understand that. Churches and pastors and teachers need to preach and teach what the Bible says about the second coming. Not with alarm or hype, but also not with apologies or embarrassment. We need to consistently go to God's Word and unpack it for those we teach, those we lead, those we shepherd. And we need to make sure that although there is much about it that we don't understand, there is so much more that is clear and relevant to our lives today. Mike Ahn is the Director of Worship and Spiritual Formation at Biola University, and he says, the hope of Advent is not rose-colored optimism. It's confidence that God will appear again just as he did that first advent. See, the first advent is a reminder, a pointer to the second advent. So we always need to remind ourselves that one day Jesus is coming back. Now, second helpful point that Peter gives us about kind of how do we incorporate this, this whole idea of the second coming into our Christmas celebration is to wait patiently. So Jesus is waiting to return, not because he's preoccupied with something else or he doesn't care about the injustice in our broken world. The reason he is waiting is because he's full of compassion. It's because he's patient and he wants every person to have the opportunity to accept the gift that he offers. He wants every person to be able to start over with a clean slate, to get a do-over with God a chance to turn their life around and head towards God instead of running away from Him. So he says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's paraphrasing Psalm 90, verse 4 here, and he's saying, God does not exist in the realm of time and space. He stands outside of it. God isn't subject to time and space like we are. He can look at all of eternity in the palm of his hand like we might look at a little, I don't know, a, a little six-inch ruler. And he can see everything that has happened in the past and everything that will happen in the future with the same sort of clarity we can do just by like, look, there's billions of years ago. Here's billions of years to come. He stands outside of all of this. So we need to recalibrate our understanding of time when we're thinking about God's action. Sometimes we feel like God is working too fast for our taste. Sometimes he's moving too slow for us. But in reality, 
His timing is always perfect. Galatians 4.4 tells us that at just the right time, God sent His Son, Jesus, the first time. So we'd be confident that His second coming will be at just the right time. Peter says, the Lord's not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Jesus is coming again. And he will judge, he will punish evil, he will restore brokenness, he will right every wrong. But we need to understand, this is not about him like sneaking up on us and catching us doing something wrong. In Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their evil ways and they live? When they turn from their evil ways... And they really live. That idea of turning, that's the word Peter uses here, repentance. It means going in one direction, stopping and turning completely in the other direction. And so the reason Jesus delays, the reason he's patient is because he wants to give every one of us the opportunity instead of walking away from him, instead of living our lives on our own and trying to stand before God on our own righteousness and saying, hey, I understand you're a perfect God, but you know, I'm pretty cool too. So you should let me spend eternity with you. For those of us who understand how messed up we really are, we desperately know we need a Savior. So he gives us this opportunity to repent. For those of us that come to church week after week, we think, you know, there are a lot of people out there that need to repent. But we sometimes forget that those of us inside here also need to repent all the time. I mean, before we ever got to church this morning, there were probably a dozen times where every one of us kind of got off track with God. You know, we start and we're thinking about it and then we get distracted. There's a squirrel over here and it's like, I'm going to go right for squirrel and we forget. Oh, wait, I, I missed it. And so I'm going to be good and kind today. Hey, you cut me off and wait, I need to get back on track with God. So just continually, those of us who already belong to the Lord need to make sure that repentance is part of our patient waiting. This is a season of repentance that God has given us. And since the Lord is patient, we too should be patient in our waiting, patient with other people. We should strive to wait with the same kind of motives and energy level as Jesus has. It's not an indifferent, passive, let's just sit around and see what happens kind of waiting. It's a searching, active praying kind of waiting, where we examine our own hearts regularly and we're honest with God about what we find. We don't make excuses about our own faults. We don't point at other people as if to throw them off the trail. Instead, we invite God's Spirit in and we give Him the freedom to correct and to change and to get rid of what does not please Him. It's a watchful, listening, loving kind of waiting where we try to serve our neighbors and we bless the cashier or the server that helps us out. We show extra grace to our family members who are going to sit across the table from us on Tuesday, even though they are completely wrong politically. We just keep our mouth shut. We pray for them. We talk to them. We serve them. We ask them questions. We put their good ahead of our own. When we have the chance, we tell the people around us, how Jesus is slowly working on us to fix our brokenness from the inside out. And we pray that God would perhaps open their hearts to that same possibility. 
we don't have any idea when this would happen, but we need to be ready. Those of you husbands who have had pregnant wives, you know that when you're waiting for a baby, it's not a sitting around, watch the game kind of waiting. That does not happen. It is a very busy, active, get the nursery ready. Make sure that we've got seven alternate routes to the hospital waiting. It's, hey, did we get the phone cord in the, you know, in the away bag? Do we have everything packed? And you check and recheck. It's that kind of waiting that we're supposed to put into play. So we want to be patient in our waiting, but purposeful as well. Third challenge that Peter gives us as we think about the second coming of Jesus is to prepare eagerly. And so in this last section of the passage, Paul uses phrases like, live holy and godly lives, look forward to the day of the Lord, speed its coming, look forward, make every effort. Now look, when it comes to the idea of prepare eagerly for judgment, that just you know, kind of sounds counterintuitive to me. If you were to look at my life over the last 24 hours, or just kind of like step inside my head for about five minutes, it would be really obvious that I need all kinds of help. At a surface level, I, yeah, somebody obviously knows me. I am proud of my family, though, over here because they didn't woo-hoo, like, you know. But at a heart level, you know, even though I look good on the outside, there is all kinds of stuff that still needs work inside of me. But here's the thing. For those of us who belong to Jesus, when he comes in judgment, understand, if we've already received his gift of grace, then we already have his approval. His righteousness has already been applied to us. And he's already paid the price for our disobedience to God. So we don't have to be terrified about the second coming of the Savior. Instead, we can be excited and expectant and eagerly looking forward to it and getting ready for it. Jesus says in Luke 21, when this finally does come and the heavens are shaking and everything is falling apart, we can lift our heads and look to the sky because we know our Redeemer is coming. Our rescuer is coming, and we're going to see him face to face. We get front row seats to see Jesus set everything straight in the world. So the things that just frustrate you and infuriate you, the injustice, the absolute ravages of humanity, whether we're talking about genocide or human slavery or sex trafficking of kids, the unfair distribution of food, just everything that goes on that is unjust, that is going to be fixed when Jesus comes. So Peter says, look, prepare eagerly. If the destruction and judgment is coming to the world that we do know in order to make way for a new heaven and earth, why would we want to hitch our future to the things of this world? Why would we invest in money or fame or possessions or success at work and let that drive us? Shouldn't we be instead storing up treasure in heaven? Shouldn't be looking for things that will last once there's a new heaven and a new earth. So Peter says, in light of all of this, what kind of people should you be? And the answer is, we should be the kind of people who live holy and godly lives. Lives that are set apart for God's purpose. So we don't just go to work to, to get a paycheck. We go to work to do God's work, to serve other people, to be a witness to his work in our lives. 
godly lives are aimed at bringing honor and glory to God, even if it's not convenient for us. So you get the sense here that these holy and godly lives should be visible and noticeable to the people around us, not just in a weird way, but in a very positive and appealing way. Peter says, look forward to the day and speed its coming. Now that idea of looking forward shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. 2 Timothy 4.8 talks about us longing for the day of his coming. And Philippians 3.20 says, we eagerly await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does he mean about speeding the day? How on earth would we be able to impact the timing of God's appearing here? Well, God invites us to join him in his work, to partner with him in the here and now, to bring justice, to right wrongs, to foster reconciliation, to love and serve the people around us. So he's saying, look, we need to pick up the pace. We need to become more intentional about God's agenda than our agenda. We need to engage more fully in the work of God's kingdom and be less concerned about the stuff on our to-do list. Surely it begins with praying, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but it doesn't end there. We need to actively work to see God's kingdom advance in the world around us. We need to join him in doing the kind of things that he's trying to accomplish in our world. Peter says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The spotless and blameless phrasing is exactly the phrase that he uses in the first chapter of this letter when he describes Jesus as the spotless and blameless Lamb of God. So he's saying, you need to try to imitate Jesus. You need to live lives that are internally and externally aligned with his purposes. You don't want to let anything in your life hinder the peace that he's already purchased for you between you and God. Don't let anything get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Sin or selfishness or disobedience, impure thoughts and motives, as much as it depends on you, you do everything you can to stay on track with Jesus. So maybe it means this Christmas season we focus some attention on cultivating a deeper relationship with Jesus. We try to understand more of his word, more about serving his church. In anticipation of his remaking heaven and earth, we seek renewal in our own hearts. We share hope and encouragement with those around us who are desperate for hope. If we're short on hope or running low on grace ourselves, then we renew our commitment to Christ and we draw near to him so that as he fills us, as his grace spills into our life, then it overflows from our life into the lives of people around us. We ask ourselves, are there pursuits or relationships in which I'm investing my time or effort or energy that aren't making an impact for God? Does he want me to redirect or reallocate my resources? Am I overlooking someone that God has put in my path? Is there anybody that I'm praying for day after day after day who needs to know Christ? Am I at least that willing to pray for somebody? Or am I just oblivious to the people around me who are distant from God? Or maybe God has put a cause or ministry on my heart. And I just kind of keep it back there and I don't bring it out and let him speak into it because I'm afraid of what he might say. I'm afraid I might have to go public or actually do something with it rather than just think about it and dream about it. So this is us saying to God, hey, look in here. 
And you do whatever work you need to do as we're waiting for you to come back. Christmas decorations at my house really involve a lot of little nativity sets. So you can't see them from here, but in the kitchen window, there is this little tiny nativity set. This is baby Jesus in a manger. And this is Mary and Joseph, and they, they fit in my hand. And we probably have, I'm guessing, 10 or 12 nativity scenes around the house. This is one from Haiti. I got to go a couple of years ago. Feed My Starving Children is the group that we've done our meal packaging events with. And these are hand-hammered by people in Haiti who are struggling with food insecurity. And they're made out of old 50-gallon drums. And this is just such a cool reminder that people in other parts of the world understand the same nativity story that I do. Here's the deal. Over the next couple of days, as we see these nativity sets and as we think about Jesus in a manger and the wise men, we need to remind ourselves this is not the whole story. This is just the beginning. We need to remind ourselves and reflect on the fact that Jesus is coming again and there's not a little cool nativity set that tells us about Jesus coming back in power and glory, but that is happening. So I want us to just take a moment and I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and we're going to pray and uh, I'll give you time to talk to God by yourself and then I'm going to close in prayer. But I want you to ask yourself, is there an area in your life where maybe God wants to speak to you about this whole idea of His second coming? Are you remembering regularly? Are you waiting patiently? Are you preparing eagerly? Listen to God right now. Jesus, we are so blown away that you stepped into humanity. You left your place of glory and you wrapped yourself in flesh and stepped into time and space and lived among us and made it crystal clear the extent of your love for us when you died on the cross. But we're so grateful, Jesus, that that's not the end of the story. For every heartache, for every injustice, for every evil that has been perpetrated in the world, you are coming back and there is coming a day when you will come in power and glory and judgment and you are going to make things right and we have screwed up our world and we desperately need you to come fix the things that we have made wrong. Thank you so much for the season you give us between your first coming and your second coming this long, patient waiting that you're doing in order that we might line our lives up with yours. So if there are people who have been wondering what a life with you would be like, I pray that this Christmas season they would figure that out. They would yield to you and they would let you be the leader and forgiver in their life. They would trust you and begin to let you have first place in their life. And then for so many of us who we do know you, but there are just so many areas of our life where we have kind of tried to hide them away from you, thinking that 
we can rationalize or justify. I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to hear your voice, and we would eagerly prepare our hearts and our lives for your second coming. We say, Amen, Lord. Come quickly. Amen. Thank you, Alex. I was reminded in the first service, Alex said, we get a front row seat to this, to the second coming of Jesus. And, and I was reminded of a time when Diane and I had a young family, three young children. We lived in Boston. We had very good friends. We had four young children, and their kids were really close friends with our kids. They were like cousins. We decided one year that we were going to go watch fireworks at uh, Natick, Massachusetts, on July 4th, and true to form, families with young kids, we were late, and we had to park, you know, a mile from where the fireworks were, so we, we're trudging out to the fireworks, we get out there, and the place is packed, there are thousands of people, you know, it's just kind of a local joint, it wasn't big downtown Boston fireworks, but still, it's a very impressive fireworks display, and brought blankets spread out, people had brought food, and but we noticed that they had saved the absolute best seats for us, we couldn't believe it, I mean, right up front. I mean, the whole place was packed, but the best seats in the house were still available to us. So shoot, hot dog, we grab our stuff, we go over and lay our blankets out. We're ready to go. We're going to see this fireworks display. And the kids are there with us. They're all excited. And it comes time, right on time, about 9 o'clock, boom, fireworks go off. And we are, I mean, we're really front row, so excited. And about a minute and a half later, all these embers start raining down on us. And we realize why people had left. I mean, our children are getting burned. As we're walking out, we realize that we weren't the first people that this happened to. Someone on the way out was selling T-shirts that said, I survived the Natick fireworks. Anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about the second coming of Jesus, and we are people that get a front row seat without the afterglow. We're people, because of our connection to Christ, we are covered, and we get to see the ultimate pyrotechnics display without the embers. Hope you have a very Merry Christmas. We hope to see you at one of our Christmas Eve services with four of your neighbors, and it's great to have you. Go in peace.